this is a critical difference between research that emerges from the global north and what I have seen through my work in India. That was Kola Zainab. She's in Bangalore, India, and is a researcher with IT for Change. And I'm Bama Athreya, host of The Gig. This is a podcast about the future of work, but it's not about robots taking people's jobs. It's about apps becoming their bosses. In the podcast's first season, The Ride, we talked about ride-hailing around the world. This season, we're talking about something you might not think could be automated, care work. A lot of these occupations that are getting platformized continue to be very socially regulated, and social regulations take a lot more to uh, wane away than simply the introduction of technology. This season is titled, Who Cares? And in episode one, we defined what care work is and talked about how throughout history, it's been undervalued and performed by those who are most marginalized in our society, especially women. Last episode, we talked to two technologists based in Spain and the United States. Both of them told us that apps are being used as band-aids on healthcare systems, tapping out resources that are already stretched thin but not actually creating more caregiving. Today, we'll talk to two more researchers studying the future of work in two very different contexts, India and Thailand. What's more, we'll be expanding our idea of what care involves. In both countries, we'll be talking about providing personal care services in people's homes. In India, it's beauty care. In Thailand, it's massage workers. Now, I'm going to introduce Kriangsak Tirakowichakorn from Bangkok. Conditions for this episode's interviews with both Kriangsak and Kola were not exactly pristine, so there will be some background noise. I noticed that the food delivery nation is really male-dominated. So I was thinking about the next project on gender and women workers in economy. But after we started, we, we could only access workers in only two sectors, um, domestic work and massage work. Kriangsak works for Just Economy Labor Institute, or JELI. His organization does research and advocacy with all kinds of precarious workers. By precarious, we mean workers who have always been gig workers, even before apps came into the picture. They are in the informal sector. We're going to hear a little more about that context from both Kola in India and Kriangsak in Thailand. About 80 to 90% of Indian workers are informally employed. It's not protected by labor regulation. And then you have the gig economy, which comes and sits right on top of it. And anyone who's studying these new forms of work, but also who is using these platforms and using the services of gig workers will tell you that it is largely the same pool of informal workers that float across traditionally available informal work and now gig work. Within the context of, of huge income inequality in Thailand, I think there's a huge difference between the cities or the urban area and country. In big cities such as Bangkok or Chiang Mai, really international, uh, a big upper middle class that have been able to connect with, with the digital economy. One of the largest Fast growing is the food delivery and the number of people in total, we have uh, 100,000 workers, which is similar to, to Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore, 
to the big cities, we are now seeing the same picture. And also on the other, you have people coming from the informal economy and during the pandemic because of the high unemployment. So you have a lot uh, of people now working in this. Now we've got a bit of a picture of what life looks like in large urban areas in India and Thailand and similar countries around the world. There are extremes of wealth and poverty. And there are enough people at the upper end to want services from an on-demand economy. My own family is from India, and I can tell you from years of family visits that on-demand is nothing new there. Way before there were apps, there were plenty of people who would come to your home to provide daily services. Keep that in mind as we hear more from Kola about personal beauty care as an example of gig work in India. I would say on-demand beauty work through platforms is drawing from the same pool of labor that was traditionally engaged in uh, brick and mortar salon services or spa services. I asked her to explain more about those doing the work and their clients. I would say that the whole range of works from salon services to massage services to spa is not lucrative enough for the socially dominant groups to enter and take on. It has been reserved for certain class and caste of people. So you have women from northeastern states migrating to uh, more metropolitan cities of the country for providing these services. But there was still the aspect of at-home delivery of services, which was local networks of beauty workers. Like the care workers we heard about in earlier episodes, in India, these are often women from marginalized communities. So to put it simply, upper middle class women living in a particular gated colony will have these contacts of women who come from outside of their residential location. But most women in the colony or, or the residential area will rely on the same network. So there's also that personal bond. Women who, the, the parlor lady, the parlor didis is the, is, is the informal way that they are referred to as they will come and deliver the service at home. They'll also have an informal conversation with them. And that is, I think, the whole aspect of emotional labor also associated with these feminized occupations. What Kola told me next was so important and so similar to what I heard from just about everyone else I interviewed this season. Lou, in episode one, had talked about how sensitive he had to be in handling cases of domestic servitude because of the emotional bonds present even in exploitative relationships. Olivia and Alexandra in episode two talked about the expectations we have of women performing care. Kola has made a point of understanding everything this implies. So I think there's two, three different things here. One is that whatever work women do, wherever women are, there is the expectation of affect, of affective labor, of some soft emotional kind of expectation is there from them. Now, of course, there are some occupations that have just come to become sites of emotional labor. And I think with beauty workers, that is the case everywhere, even in Western countries. And there, it tends to be a bit more formalized in that. And I found it very interesting that the workers in salons were given training 
on like sensitivity towards violence. So for instance, if a client comes in and in the conversation that they strike up with the worker, if they happen to disclose some sensitive information, for instance, incidents of violence in their own personal life, then how does the work, the salon worker respond to that? There is that expectation that when you're receiving some beauty or care services, you will also in that moment of relaxation, open up and talk about deep personal things. And then it's on the worker to respond appropriately to absorb the emotional tensions that are uh, created. And of course, not responding appropriately poses a direct threat to their livelihoods. To be able to continue getting work, you have to maintain a rapport. Many of us, I think, can relate to what Kala has said. Most of us have had our hair cut at some point, and perhaps we felt that awkwardness of just sitting there with someone standing over us. It's unusual not to say anything at all. So we chat, and perhaps our perception of the quality of the service is tied up in the quality of that exchange. This is why in this episode, we're describing intimate types of personal services, services that involve touch and contact as a form of care work. We'll hear more from Kola in a bit about her interviews with beauty workers. But first, let's go back to Kriangsak to hear more about Thailand's on-demand domestic and massage workers. Domestic workers are one of the most vulnerable uh, groups of workers, even before the gig economy, right? Because they're working in private space. There's also the issue of golden power between the employers and, and the workers. In many contexts, they're migrant workers. Kriangsak told me how workers in massage parlors were already exploited by their bosses, and some of them hoped to have more autonomy if they were self-employed through apps. A lot of them talked about not having uh, a boss. For example, massage workers, when they compare their work on platform with physical work that they have to go into a, a massage place, sometimes they don't get paid, but with platforms, there's Another kind of control that they face to the issue of wages because the platforms are the only one that control or determine pay. So workers are now really frustrated. So over time, the pay gets less and there's like a gradual reduction. Plus, they feel like they do not have tasks assigned to them as much as when they started. Kriangsak's comments made me think of my interviews with ride-hailing drivers in season one especially the interviews in episode one, Hooked. Drivers there described how they were lured by the promise of high pay. And in the early days, they enjoyed the autonomy and found gig work lucrative. But over time, after they were hooked, they had less and less control and lower and lower pay. It sounds like this is what's happening to massage workers too. But there are even more dangers when you work in someone's home. We know these are workers that face very large amounts of gender-based violence. Are things better or worse for them via the platforms? This is a really interesting question because started our research, we thought the care workers would be, you know, more protected with platforms. But actually, we hear a lot of experiences that they face at work, which is sexual gender-based violence. Most of the time, they said about the customers, even though sometimes they see that it was a woman who, who we serve the service, once they showed up at the place, they found that there was only a man there, or so there's a couple. Sometimes the woman would leave and, and the man stayed there. Then 
we asked him what they did. And, and most platforms asked him to leave the room to get away from the situation. Even though the call center for the workers, most workers said that doesn't really work and that most platforms only have reviews from the customers. And when customers complain about the workers, they, they will follow that kind of complaints and deactivate the, the account. Workers do not have any grievances uh, mechanism at all. When they are the one who are the victims or who are the one who face gender-based violence, they, they, do, they do not have a place to go. It's disturbing to hear that clients can rate workers, but workers can't rate clients even when they are abusive. One very serious problem is that workers can't count on platforms to help them with abusive clients. The other problem, which ride-hailing drivers also face, is how rating systems are used to punish and control workers. You know, those one through five star or smiley face ratings that you put in to rate your gig provider. Now we'll go back to Kolai in India to hear more about the experience of beauty care workers. It's very challenging, your subordination to the platform, complete loss of control to the platform. There's a lot of different types of challenges beginning with the arbitrariness of ratings. So workers have no control over when and how their ratings will drop, which will push them into certain mandatory processes. For instance, on urban company, if your rating drops beyond a certain level, you will be reinitiated into a process of training, which you may have undergone at the very beginning and you may not need it. And you have no means to question why your rating has gone down. The down rating has to do with the tasks that you accept or reject. While you may be rejecting tasks for perfectly rational, viable reasons, it will show up in your rating which affects how you are placed as a worker within the platform's internal logic. And this can also lead to blocking your ID, which means a complete full stop to your avenues for earning. Kola talked about the arbitrariness of ratings, and both she and Kriangsak said that workers on these platforms have no real means to challenge unfair ratings. Now I'm going to replay a short clip from our interview with Alexandra Matiscu in episode two about care platforms in the United States. Care.com, for example, there's there are rating systems much like Uber and, and Lyft use rating systems, but clients could rate workers, but workers couldn't rate clients. So workers' reputation could be very, you know, significantly damaged if the client gave them a one-star rating because they turned down a job or something. But if there's an abusive employer, there was no way for the workers themselves to give a reciprocal feedback on the platform to be able to protect them. Workers in domestic or any kind of personal care service are vulnerable to harassment and gender-based violence. Any company in these sectors should know this. But in episode two, Alexandra from Data and Society told us that even in the U.S. care work platforms just don't bother giving workers real ways to report harassment. Kriangsak's comments get at another problem. Not only do the platforms not intervene, but workers can't turn to anyone else either because for informal workers like these, there are no legal protections. So, he told me, they've started to figure out ways to protect themselves gender-based violence or sexual harassment that they face. They told us, oh, because we, we don't have information from the platforms or customer review, 
for us. So we're going to take note of the customers that are difficult or, you know, dangerous. So we created like a WhatsApp chat group that, you know, information locations or addresses of customers. I think even though most of the platforms have restrictions and, and most platforms have really harsh punishment, they would deactivate the account of the workers. In Thailand, with help from Kriangsak's group, Jelly, domestic and massage workers are connecting with each other, forming chat groups, and advising each other which clients to avoid, even though they risk being penalized or deactivated for sharing this information. In India, the beauty care workers are doing even more to organize and collectively demand change. That was an audio clip from late December 2021, yes, just a few weeks ago, of a major protest outside the offices of a platform for home beauty care services in India called Urban Company. I had talked to Kola before these protests, but the workers that she was interviewing were already organizing and pressuring the company for changes. Here's her description of an earlier action that they organized back in October. Women beauty workers went on a strike in Gurgaon. They protested outside the urban company office with a set of very specific demands. And sometime later, the company responded. And now policies that they have come up with to address the demands of the workers. But of course, there's a lot to be said about how adequate the response is. The interesting thing is that Urban Company draws most of its revenue from the beauty and wellness vertical, more than 50%. So beauty workers going on strike really shook the viability and the profitability of their model. But due to the imbalanced power relations, the outcome is not still as favorable. One of the Urban Company beauty workers, she shared her experience that they had gone to their manager saying that the commission rates are unreasonably high and we need to discuss this. And the response of the manager was that there's nothing to do about this. There's plenty of workers willing to do the work that you're doing, basically implying that you have no bargaining power and you're easily replaceable. So there is no discussion to be had. There's no negotiation to be done. In October, it had seemed like the protests hit a dead end, but it turns out the workers continued organizing. We'll be hearing more about the late December protests in a future episode. For now, we'll wrap up with a few thoughts from both Kriangsak and Kola about what needs to happen to make platform work better for the people they've interviewed. Massage workers in Thailand unfortunate that their work is often associated sex work, even though a lot of workers told us that they have nothing to do with sex work and they want to be professional, some degree of formalization of work in the way the customers feel like, oh, they have uniforms. Massage work is really undervalued. There is a lot of control that platforms currently exercise over workers. And there is a case of efficiency also to be made. That if platforms simply matched supply and demand, workers could potentially end up in a situation where they're managing their workday based on their own ability and willingness versus being so subservient to the platform. So I think, yeah, delimiting the role of the platform, clearly defining what the platform can do and cannot do, 
that is the one thing that is coming to mind. I'm struck by the fact that in the end, both our guests reflected on the need to just respect these workers, treat this as a form of care work and treat the workers who do it as professionals. They need choices about who they work for and how they work. These are really simple things. And then there are the things that actually just seem like a matter of basic human rights. These are occupations where people have a high risk of harassment and gender-based violence. It seems like a no-brainer to eliminate the client ratings and give workers the ability to flag and report abusive clients. Are these changes at odds with the business model? And I wonder if you can even create fair platforms for care. We'll be talking about that subject in the next episode of the gig, The Company You Keep. In today's episode, We've heard that gig work in some countries is just a continuation of the informal economy. Women workers in personal care services face situations fraught with emotional expectations and with constant risk of harassment. Platforms can exacerbate their helplessness by controlling them through arbitrary rating systems. But workers in both Thailand and India are finding their own way to contest this control. I'm Bama Athreya, and you've been listening to The Gig. My producer is Evan Papp at Empathy Media Lab. You can support us by visiting our page on Anchor FM. That page is anchor.fm backslash the gig dash podcast. You can find our previous episodes there too. The Gig is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. To check out more shows on topics like this one, just visit laborradionetwork.org.